0: Hello and welcome to the Artsy Podcast, where three editors take you around the art world. I'm your host, Isaac Kaplan, joined this week by senior editor, Tess Thackera. Hey, Isaac. Hey, Tess. And editorial associate, Abigail Kane. Hey, Isaac. And this week, we're going to be discussing your article, Abby, about the history of the infamous or famous cube. So the first question I want to ask you is, what pigment of white? Uh, does something <laughs> need to be? Can it be like sea foam? Can it be cloud white? I don't
1: think that? I think sea foam is actually like green.
0: Okay, well, th- <laughs> fact check. But actually, though, what are the specifications of the white cube? What do we kind of mean when we say that?
1: Sure. So. The term white cube has been around um, in art world lingo for decades. And what we're talking about when we say white cube is a particular way of organizing a gallery space, whether that's a commercial gallery or a museum exhibition. And the checklist, if you want to call it that, for this sort of space is white, undecorated walls. So obviously nothing on the walls except for the works of art. Um, Hidden sources of artificial light. So no fancy sconces that are visible and no windows. And some sort of plain, non distracting floor. So maybe polished wood, maybe some sort of concrete. But the point is, all of these
0: things should not distract from the art. Right. So you're trying to create a white cube.
1: Yeah. It doesn't have to be a cube, I guess. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, where, where does the term come from, though?
1: Uh, yeah. The term white cube actually originated in 1976 um, from an art forum essay. Actually, it was three essays, I think, published in a row by the critic and artist, Rhino Doherty, And it was like a sensation. Like he published these essays and like the the art forum flew off the shelves. Um, and he said later in interviews that people came up to him for years after saying, oh, my gosh, you said exactly what I've been thinking for years and years. Everything gets shown in these same like sterile white space.
0: And as what you just said kind of indicates, people had obviously been thinking about this for years and years. So it's not like his essay began the White Cube. He was actually just articulating something that had begun earlier. Yeah,
1: quite a a bit earlier, actually. The actual invention of the White Cube as like a display strategy happened in the 1930s.
0: And was there a moment where the White Cube was really solidified as kind of the dominant exhibition strategy?
1: Yeah, there was a moment when
0: the white cube was sort of institutionalized
1: as the standard for museum shows. And that was, uh, in 1936 with a show at MoMA. Um, it was called cubism and abstract art. And it was, um, organized by Alfred Barr. Who's like the, you know, (laughs) legendary director of the MoMA, but yeah, it was, this was like the first time that artwork had been hung in these very, you know, clean spare spaces
0: um in a major institution that's in a sort ma- of, yeah
1: right in a major well it had been hung it had been hung in other so like the wadsworth athenaeum had done a show a few years earlier that was very similar so had the harvard art gallery but momo was yeah momo was like the, a big deal and it sort of cemented this as the thing that would go on for decades and decades and actually till today to be the dominant way of displaying art it's actually kind of crazy to look at the photos of that show like the archival images, because. Except for the fact that they're in black and white. They look exactly the same as images of like a MoMA show from, you know, a few months ago.
0: Yeah, except the MoMA at that time wasn't in the building that we we know. No,
1: it it wasn't. It was in like a townhouse, I believe, um, in Manhattan somewhere. And so they actually, they stripped down all of these decorative elements that were in the townhouse already. They took off all the light fixtures. They got rid of the, like the carpeting in there um, to make it as sort of... Clean as possible, and then they moved into their new building a few years later, um, which was actually one of the first museums built with this sort of new idea of museum architecture in mind, which was basically that there shouldn't really like the architect shouldn't be that important; the importance should be on the work of art. Um, so they took a lot of cues from like department stores for building the the new MoMA, which you can compare to like the Met, for example, which was this beautiful, architecturally grand. Uh, building that they thought privileged the architecture over the works of art.
0: Yeah. Mm. I think yeah, that's a good kind of segue to what art, how, how you know how art was shown before the invention of the white cube. I think it's so ubiquitous now that people don't really remember mm. a time pre-white cube.
2: Yeah, so if you think of the 19th century, the most famous display mode was the salon hangings um, of the Paris salons, in which work was hung basically from floor to ceiling in very crowded arrangements, and the work didn't have a lot of space to breathe. Mm -hmm. Um, And these spaces were kind of, correct me if I'm wrong, Abby, conceived of as storage houses too. They didn't have separate storage houses. Well, I think,
1: that's true. More in a museum setting. So the salons were the salons weren't formal museums. They were like places where you could go see art, but they like they had been conceived of as like they were juried and temporary. Right, right. right. They were more like shows, I right. guess, than than museums. But the thing that you're referencing is the museums that came after those salon style hangs like the Louvre, for example. Yeah, they didn't have any idea that they were going to end up with enough art that they would need to store some of it later. Right. right. I think they assumed that any art that they were going to buy for the museum was worth putting on the wall. So as these museums became more and more popular, um, because they were hugely popular, like in the late 1700s and early 1800s, Um, They started collecting more works of art and started putting them all on the wall. And then at one point they realized we have too much stuff. We can't fit it all onto the wall, but where do we put it? We don't have a place to store it. And we also don't have anyone to decide what should go on the wall. We don't have anyone to really judge the quality of the art and decide what's important and what's not. So that, which I thought was really interesting, is sort of the beginning of curators as uh, a job. Um, Curators didn't really exist before, like museums started having overcrowding
2: problems. So they hadn't really given much thought to the experience of the viewer prior to bringing a curator into the space and thinking about how they were arranging artworks. Right. Well, they actually, they started thinking about it. They
1: started being, like, people started complaining. They would go to these, as museums became more and more popular, people would go and say, I'm tired. (laughs) Like, this makes me tired going to these museums and walking around and having to crane my neck to look at this stuff up at the top and bend down to look at the stuff next to the floor. But no one had quite figured out how to deal with it. And curators are one way of doing that. I still get tired. Yeah, I
2: think the the quote in your article is that you get sore feet and an achy head. Yeah. Which is how I feel it fares, which is, I mean, where things are hung in very crowded spaces.
0: Yeah. I think it's also interesting, though, that the the sort of purity of the white wall um, and sort of the ability to isolate work against a quote-unquote neutral background was kind of picked up by Fascists and, and Nazis. How, what's their relationship to uh, the White Cube?
1: Yeah, that's an interesting moment in the development of the White Cube. Um, I guess going back to this, you know, overcrowding of works. Eventually, people started realizing that was bad. They started cutting down the number of works that were on the wall, and suddenly there was a lot of wall space. And people were like, "Well, what color should this be?" Uh, they hadn't had to worry about it before because it'd been covered in paintings. So they started trying different colors, and there was like a lot of like sort of pseudoscience into like which color, you know, made your brain understand the art better so they used red they used green they used some gray but the nazis were the first to actually start using white consciously as like their background color of choice the thing is that you have to remember is that they were choosing it because they thought it was a color of purity but when later in like post nazi germany they started using white as the traditional color they were using it more as like a nod to Bauhaus interiors So it wasn't really the same like like they weren't taking it from the Nazis in the sense of, oh, you know, we think this is like the purest color. We're trying to, you
0: know, purify art. But as you know, what you said kind of notes, white isn't neutral, right? So there's like ideological connotations. Exactly, yeah.
1: When Alfred Barr was deciding to use this display strategy of the white cube as sort of MoMA's go-to choice, he was really thinking about privileging the art over everything else, privileging like form over political context, over social context, which he and sort of everyone around there described as neutral. But obviously, if you're eliminating political and social context, it's not really neutral. You're privileging one thing over another. Um, And that was something I think people didn't really talk about Um, So much until the 60s, which I know is something that you have thought a lot about,
0: Isaac. I mean, I I sort of see the White Cube as part of like a... And and it's like claims to universality and neutrality as part of like a broader assertion by a lot of museums that they're sort of neutral arbiters of apolitical works of art and and they're apolitical spaces. And so the white walls sort of symbolize that very palpably and try and make that assertion, but... As like institutional critique has made very clear uh, museums are very political from who sits on their board to who's allowed in. I mean, there used to be a separate entrance for African-Americans at the MoMA, for example. So um, I think a lot of the white Wall's sort of claims to objectivity or implied claims to objectivity have been sort of debunked along with the broader criticisms of museums, even though you still hear yeah. people say things like that today. They're just wrong. Well,
2: it's also sort of tied to the idea that modern art is separate or some, somehow discrete or purely self-referential, which in itself is not the case, by sort of negating the world around you or being self-referential taking a position. And so I think that those two ideas are, are tied together.
0: Yeah, and there's always an element of anachronism when... You're showing like a work of Greek pottery at the Met, for example, because museums, as we understand them today, just didn't exist in ancient Greek times. But I think it's sometimes strange or sort of feels more uh, like you're ignoring kind of the history of the display of images when you show like an impressionist painting. Uh, on like a sort of a very sparse background by itself, and not in a salon style hang, with no real indication that many of the people at the time who would see this work would have would have seen it at you know the salon if it was allowed in uh, next to next to realist paintings, next to all sorts of you know not not with the with its by people by the same artist or within the same genre. So so I think there there are certain sort of benign and also then sort of m- malicious things that are kind of erased by the by the white white walls of a gallery space.
1: Mm-hmm. And I think also there's this interesting thread that runs through the development of the white cube in the thirties that there's sort of like this tension between the educational departments of the museum and the curatorial departments. Cause the educational departments want there to be docents. They want to have a lot of wall text. They want to explain and give the context of the work of art and the curators are like, no, we really don't want wall text. We really don't want docents messing up the space. We want it to be this very clean, pure space And in doing that, they really privilege the people who come into the gallery who already know things about the art, which generally are wealthier, more well-educated people. Um, And I think that's one of the ways that they sort of, art galleries start to have this really elitist feel. Mm -hmm. Because before it was like, I mean, the earliest museums were places where everybody went. People complained about all the people that were in museums. They would say, "Oh, people in here smell. People in here aren't <laughs> like aren't cultured." But they were still there in the museum.
0: I mean, I think it's interesting though because even in sort of more classicizing institutions, they're like that have sort of ancient Greek looking facades or, or 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 are less aligned with sort of the minimalist white wall aesthetic. There's still a claim to a sort of temple like aura of the art. It's just somewhat different you know it it comes from like a different place but there's always there's i think for like along with like the invention of modernity there's sort of always been this kind of emphasis of the artist as like a spiritual refined place
2: although i feel like that's changing now in museum design if you think about a space like the whitney museum which opened its new space in 2015 you know it's it's very much privileging outdoor space the balconies natural lights Trying to create relationships between the artwork and the skyline of New York, um, and it doesn't feel like it's like it's sort of a discreet temple.
0: Yeah, I think it's interesting though because the Whitney's architecture, to my mind, and we're venturing a little bit off the White Walls, but we're we're in the spirit of the conversation. The Whitney's architecture sort of echoes kind of the flashy old glass architecture of sort of what we think of as like expensive today it's definitely in place with i think a trend towards sort of spaces that are clearly moneyed
2: yes and no i mean it's also when the whitney first opened this building it was decried as pretty ugly from the outside called it ugly (laughs) people i mean it's an inside out building which is one of the ideas in your article the space that's designed with the artworks inside the rooms inside in mind mm-hmm. over creating a kind of sexy building that looks great from the street.
0: Yeah, and I think anyone who went to the Whitney Biennial sort of saw that the institution is more willing to do things with its space that while it has white walls, while it's clearly a museum, while it's obviously expensive, still transgress the 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 rigorous commitment to purity that like a white cube would have so you have occupy museums debt fair work like taking up a whole wall and then doing this kind of interesting salon style hang of artists work um with all of these works arranged very close together with uh, a sheet that you have to look at to see the artist names and, and it sort of talks about how much debt they're they're in And I think it's really interesting to sort of see, you know, this is a very political work, obviously, but you're you're generally seeing, I think, more in the last maybe decade or so, uh, salon style hangs uh, at places like the Venice Biennale, for example, at these major, major spaces. So how do you think um, the salon style hang kind of now has its own sort of voice and message compared to the white wall?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think the the return of the salon hanging is partly due to an increasing focus on accessibility across the art world. The idea that um, art spaces should be friendly and warm um, and appealing to people from all walks of life, of all demographics. It's not, these aren't elite spaces, so they shouldn't be elite spaces. And the artwork should connect to the outside world in some way, should connect to your experience of life. And so very... Tightly controlling the way we display art, I think I think that's getting relaxed a little bit.
1: I will say, I one of the people that I talked to for the story that I wrote, he I asked him about salon style hangs because you know I've I've seen like salon style hangs at like the RISD Museum, for example, they have a whole room that's just top like top to bottom full of art, and he said, yeah, those things have been coming back the past like two ge- decades. Maybe they're kind of trendy, but you'll notice none of the work in those salon style hangs are is important work. Like you would never hang a Monet in a salon style hanging in a museum. It would still be privileged in that white cube Yeah. I mean,
0: with the exception perhaps of the ultimate salon style hang, which was kind of a salon style hang, Maurizio Catalan's retrospective at the Guggenheim. Uh, he mentioned yeah,
1: that too, actually, actually the guy that I was talking to. Cause we were cause I also asked him, I was like, What's the future? Like, is there an alternative for the white cube? And is, you know, something gonna happen? He was like, Well, No, there's no alternative for the white cube and maybe something will happen, but I don't know. But he also mentioned the Guggenheim because he was like, this is like the first example of a museum that's going beyond the sort of style that MoMA set up in the 1930s when it was built. And he was like, everybody hates showing at the Guggenheim because it's not a good place to see art. But I will say the fact that it has that central rotunda means that artists have been doing crazy things with that space ever since it got built. And And he referenced the Maurizio Catalan show and he was just saying, you know, it'll be interesting to see like like the Tate's Turbine Hall, for example, is another huge space that artists have been sort of tasked with filling. Um, and it sort of remakes art making those those kind of spaces.
2: Yeah, Yeah. although conversely, some artworks just don't work in that space as a result. Like right. if you try to, I mean, Agnes Martin, people love that exhibition. But I feel like a lot of those works need a very quiet, discreet space where they're not vying with um, architecture that kind of has a loud voice.
0: Yeah, I mean, I also think it's interesting to think about the resurgence of the salon style hang in the context of the digital age. Like people today are generally, and I'm definitely speaking for myself, used to and comfortable with scrolling through literally thousands of images incredibly quickly and not really dwelling on them. So I think on one hand, it's interesting to be put in a context that is difficult where you're forced to sort of spend a lot of time with one image and really move through it and and take it apart but i will say salon style hangs feel very natural in that your eyes can flip quickly between a lot of works a lot of images sort of take in a sense and linger where you find interesting and then move on to if you don't and and that i think in a strange way this this hanging strategy of the 1800s feels more contemporary than the hanging strategy of the 1930s, 40s, 50s.
1: That's so interesting. I'd never thought about it like that, but it does. The salon style hang does kind of look like a Google image search.
0: Okay, so where are we going to be? uh, Which white cubes are we going to be hanging out (laughs) in this weekend? Drinking white wine? Drinking white wine. Abby.
1: So I'm a podcast person, obviously.
0: What? <laughs> I know. Crazy, I produce this one, I listen cr- to other ones. Wow.
1: Um, And I've been really enjoying the past couple of weeks. Um, The Met has its first podcaster in residence, this guy named Nick DeMeo, who does this podcast that I've I've liked for a really long time. It's called The Memory Palace, and it's these short 15-minute episodes about these different moments in history. Um, But he's doing um, four, I think, four different episodes, each one focusing on a different work from the Met's collection. And I just listened to one the other day about um, this painting that it was discovered. It was one of, I think, maybe the only work of art um, by a slave that still exists in America, but I want to go see the
2: work in person. So I think I'm cool. gonna go there
1: and listen to a couple of the episodes while I'm like while I'm actually in the room with the piece that he's talking about. That's cool. That's
2: awesome. I am also going to the Met, but to see something different. Um, I'm gonna go and check out the new rooftop installation, which this year is by Adrian Villa Rojas, mm-hmm. um, who creates sculptures on site, usually very monumental and made with his team of people that just kind of fi- find materials in the local area and construct them.
0: It's going to be so nice. The weather is supposed to be beautiful this weekend.
2: Just Finally, we deserve it.
1: Yeah. It's been so long since I've <laughs> seen the sun.
0: Anyone in the New York area, I, well, I'm also your uh, weather forecaster. <laughs> so um, I'm going to be going to the Onassis Cultural Center in New York, which is an institution that I had not. I admit, heard of before a very glowing Holland Cotter review of their exhibition of Greek art uh, in the New York Times. Uh, it's a it's an exhibition that sort of looks at the depiction of emotion in Greek art. And as anyone who is familiar with that knows uh, with Greek art may know um, the sort of development of a no- emotion and human characteristics is, is really compelling to sort of see it kind of taking hold of this very sort of early displays um, for the first time. All right, that's all we have time for this week. Thanks so much to Abby and Tess for joining us. Please remember to rate and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes if you haven't already. See you guys next time. Production this week was done by Abigail Kane with assistance from Demi Kim. The theme music is by Broke for Free.